0: duck camp makes outdoor goods so you can outdoor good from the shallow water flats to the mallard filled marshes duck camp is there to make you feel comfortable and enhance the quality of your time in the elements not only do they make some of the best outdoor apparel on the market but they support many of the organizations near and dear fighting for a resource in the natural world check them out at duckcamp.com and tell them we sent you Pappas Pilar is a spirit that embodies adventure. Named after the late great Ernest Hemingway and his boat, the Pilar, the name says it all. This ultra-premium blended rum is hand-selected from around the Caribbean and blended by master blender Ron Call. After a long day on the water, when the sun is descending the sky, end on a good note with Pilar by your side. Go support them at papaspilar.com or a liquor store near you. As a 38-year-old marine research scientist for Bonefish Tarpon Trust, Ross Buczyk is one of the most important people in our sport. As anglers continue to experience excessive pressure on the flats around Florida and many other fishing destinations around the world, it's become obvious to all. Habitat degradation and a decreasing biomass of our fish is a real thing. On today's podcast, we'll dive into some of the questions many are asking. We broke everything, we broke lines, we broke hooks, we broke rods, we broke our minds, we broke marriages, we broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls and whoever had the biggest pair of panties went to pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way so I double lunged him both ways.
1: But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're gonna teach him a lesson.
2: I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet.
1: And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App?
0: And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out thoroughly used up proclaiming wildly wow what a ride
1: (laughs) there's something fishy going on here
0: all right uh ross thanks for driving down this morning from miami it's a couple hour drive and so you got four hours, but I think your story uh, as a scientist with Bonefish Tarpon Trust and the conservation that you guys are, are doing, and, uh, and what you, we all had that meeting the other day. It was kind of a fundraiser, but it was also a video of what you recently found, this uh, bonefish aggregation. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but I, I thought it was really important to maybe talk about what I find really interesting is your life, living on a sailboat, you know, in your work as a scientist, and you never get to hear what scientists do and how they do their job. Uh, and Nikki thought, Man, living on a sailfish, you must be the best fisherman in the world. You're a scientist, you study these fish, you got to catch more fish than anybody.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish that was the case, uh, but I, I like it more than anybody else, and uh, I, I need good eyes. I bet, Nikki, you probably have some pretty. Pretty good eyes for seeing fish. Better than my father's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, one of the scientists we work with, I mean, he he can see everything. I, you know, so much so that I didn't I didn't believe him when he was pointing out fish until they, they were you know, run by the boat. And I even got contacts and all these other eye treatments. just Trying to help. Trying to get it who, better. Who yeah. is that? Uh, Nick Castillo. He's really? a PhD student doing the pharmaceutical work. Uh, he he was a guy. He still is a guide up in Isla Mirada as well as, as doing his PhD. Very cool. He's got yeah. great eyes. Oh, my gosh. Like. Yeah, doesn't does, fish will not go by him without him seeing it. Yeah. Really? That's pretty cool. Yeah, good asset to have when you need to catch a lot of fish for science.
0: Yeah, so um, how long have you been working with, with Bonefish Tarpon Trust? It's, it's an organization mm-hmm. that's been around like 25 years or so.
2: Yeah, yeah, I started working with BTT uh, officially in 2017. Um, I, I was a part of some of their work they did early on with Bonefish when I was uh, 22. That's kind of how I connected with the organization. And then when I was doing my PhD as well, I was a part of a, one of their re, original research grants to map the spatial, temporal changes in the decline of bonefish. So it's been, I've been around for a bit, uh, but officially at twenty seventeen.
0: Right. What do you see out there? I mean, how do you do your job? Like, like, as far as you know, you're, you're, you're It's all science based, but mm-hmm. what do you look for? Uh, and. I mean, as far as, I, mean, I know the aggregation is a little bit, a little bit different mm-hmm. uh, than, than your normal work, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. Yeah. So what is your normal work? What do you typically do as a scientist?
2: Uh, my job is as a scientist is to look at the fishery through data. So how I perceive the fishery, how I do my job is through looking at numbers, turning, mathematizing. The, the field observations and all that using computer simulation models and all sorts of cool data toys to, um, really, you know, look for patterns, look for trends and relate that to changes that guides see and changes that we do with management and everything like that.
1: Yeah, that was my question. So it it's first comes from the guides or the yeah. locals and they'll come to you and say, Hey, I think we have a problem with this. And then you're going to take a deeper dive into why and how and,
2: yeah, right? yeah. It doesn't
1: all come from you. Like, oh, we need a, you know, we need to
2: look at Western dry rocks. It's, yeah. it's a bigger issue that gets brought to you. Correct? Yeah the, the the frame the framework how we work, particularly at BTT is that we you know, work hand in hand in partnership with the fishing community down here. So the guides, the anglers, they are they are basically sharks that we can talk to. You know, they have they are very much part of the ecosystem as everything else. So when they see changes, um, as if a shark saw a change, we can talk to the guides and figure out what what would, that, what would the underlying driver would that be? How can we quantify that? And what does that mean for the sake of the species?
0: You know, I also find it interesting is that, you know, you would think that BTT would just be locally based. Mm-hmm. And it, initially it was, but you guys are like in Belize and Bahamas and kind of everywhere. To, and you also too had all the netting stopped in Cuba. How did that take place? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and
2: why too? I think people would find that very interesting. So that yeah, the mission of BTT is to conserve the flats fisheries in the Greater Caribbean through science, advocacy, and education. And when we got started, we we wanted to be like Ducks Unlimited and Trout Unlimited, where it's you know re- very much restoration, policy, engagement. But we knew nothing about bonefish, permit, and tarpon, their ecology or their biology. So we. We brought in the science component originally to just to learn what we needed to do in the first place. And that has you know, molded into the this science-based advocacy and education approach that we take today. So the initial part of BTT was to bring back the bonefish fishery and the keys that had uh, been undergoing a long decline for instance, about the mid 1990s. And we learned through the re- reproductive cycle, they spawn in these crazy, this is insane spawning process, like nothing else does this, where they form these aggregations near shore And then they migrate overnight to depths of like a thousand feet of water. And they dive down to a couple hundred feet of water and spawn. And the idea behind that is that it can just spread their seed through everywhere, which is great if you live in a place that's like a hurricane zone. And, you know, if you're on a tiny little island and it gets decimated, you know, you'll have spring, the offspring come to you. But from a conservation perspective, that means like if we want to keep our Keys population going. Cuba's got to have a thriving bonefish population. You know, Belize needs to have one as well. So, that's, so that really initialized our work in other and, places. And, and that's because of the
0: Gulf Stream, thinking that a lot of the uh, the larvae are going to come north through the Gulf Stream up to Key West and the Keys?
2: Yeah, yeah. How much? Enough, you know? Um, right. we, didn't, we, never, we, we lost our spawning stock of bonefish in 2010, and we got bonefish again, so there's obviously a connection there. Um, and now that we have our own population going again, I'm sure we're, we're getting a lot of retention from the spawning sites that we're mapping. Mm-hmm. So it's optimistic for bonefish. It's a good time, good time to be alive if you like bonefish.
0: Well, you're talking about the spawning uh, ritual
2: yeah. of bonefish. Tarpon's quite
0: similar too. They, don't they, they gather at the bridges then go offshore and spawn in
2: deep water. Oh, it's exactly the same. Yeah, and every, like the bonefish spawning rhythm here in the Keys, is like the same exact thing as tarpon season, but like each spawning event is compressed into like five days. So like the whole routine of migrating oceanside, bonefish do that. Uh, it's more subtle and you gotta know what to look for. And then the aggregations near shore like they do with the bridges. And then they runs offshore. Like There was that video of that guy on the jet ski. Yeah, I saw that. that I ran that. over a bunch of them 1,000 feet of water. It's like freaking, can't get away from the damn things, those jet skis, man. I, yeah. <laughs> I did <laughs> you I hire did that.
1: <laughs> So So bonefish migrate similar to tarpon
2: yeah and in the sense that it's or,
1: or the spawn
2: yeah um well it's a, like you know with the tarpon it's like the so you know i think there's a big social component when they do doing when they're swimming oceanside or you know they're picking up friends they're they're meeting girls and then they kind of congeal at the aggregations and bonefish do the same thing but it's over a much shorter window of time it's not a couple months it's you know a matter of days how often do bonefish spawn Uh, they, they will spawn from October to May and they usually take uh, January and February off. So you have this weird kind of two hump spawning season and we're kind of, what we're learning this year is that not every bonefish spawns each season. It's actually around 40% of them do. which is kind of low, uh, and it's, it's a lot lower in some areas, which is a conservation concern. I find
0: that it, that that statement interesting. Only forty percent spawn. How do you, I mean, how do you find that number? Only forty percent.
2: So we we have a bunch of fish tagged, and at least the aggregation we we found that we know that um, if they go to that aggregation, they generally spawn. So if they don't go to it, and we know that from the the detection oh, data, I see from the um, tagged fish, and we validated. We built this really cool tag type. With this company that just has all this new cool bells and whistles that records like the maximum depth of bonefish swims so we know we, we validated with like the regular tags that you know one of those fancy tagged fish goes to the aggregation it goes and spawns and if it doesn't go to the aggregation it, it doesn't spawn so mm-hmm. did you did you get
0: a sailboat just so you could go and live to study in different locations as a
2: scientist. Yeah. Either, Otherwise, you got to uh, stay in a hotel. You can't yeah. keep
0: renting houses in different locations.
2: No. Or was
0: that a byproduct of just your life? Uh,
2: I was a, uh, Yeah, it's a really interesting story. So, I my dad he when he was my age he dropped everything moved to California with my mom bought a sailboat and worked for just long enough for him to sail across the Pacific and disappear for three years. So he he did that, and then he ran out of money, and then had to come back, uh, which is the reason why I'm born over there. Uh, otherwise, I would have been born in Florida like they were. But um, so that you know, I was I got the, the the job out of BTT actually came out of nowhere. I was, um, you know, I, was, I always wanted to be a professor, like academic professor, have my own little lab, do all that cool stuff, and I was doing everything to get there. You know, every grinding benchmark I could. And then BTT just kind of offered me the job out of nowhere. Just said, hey, "I got the job for you in the keys. You want to? Uh, do you want it?" And I had some interest in the universities and stuff. And I was like, "Shoot, yeah." He's like, "You're gonna be working with fishing guides. You're gonna be fishing a bunch. Is that cool with you?" And I was <laughs> like, "Yeah, yeah." Mm-hmm. So I thought about it for like two weeks, and it's like a huge deviation from like a career. I can't. I could once I took this job, I couldn't go back to academia. Um, anyways, I, I decided to take it. But I'm looking around in the keys and like, well, you know, I don't well how would I want to live? How do I how do what do I want to do down here? And I, I knew the sailing was good. You know, it's got we get good prevailing winds out of the east. Uh I knew there was really cool anchorages around here. You can you can if you had a shallow draft boat, you can kind of go anywhere. And so I thought about it and then I started looking at boats for sale. And my dad, he cruised around with this guy that had the same boat that I first bought. This uh, it's a Jim Brown Trimaran. They're uh these wooden beautiful boats. He's like, oh, that boat's really cool. If you can get that boat, you should buy it. So, uh, long, long story short, I got it. And uh, you know, until you own a boat, you don't really know what anything. You, what you know you ha- what you have? Yeah. Or like you you, lo- you know less than nothing. So you know, it's that that first year of owning something is always the most dangerous. And um, so yeah, I, I pulled the trigger on it, and you know, learned learned how to rebuild diesel engines, rig sailboats, wire you know all the electrical stuff you need to do, and and that journey has been really fun. You know, it's the the adventure at every step of the way, maintaining the boat and then, you know, being free to go wherever you want, whenever you want, more right. or less. You know, like I have just as much fun sailing, you know, because I normally am in marathon and I'm just up in Miami just for um, some recent research we've been doing. Um, but yeah, going just anchor and be high off the content keys for a weekend. That's just as much fun for me as it would be to, you know, book a trip to Mexico and, right. and deal with all that. So, right. uh, was it, What was the learning curve life to become a scientist? To become a scientist?
0: Yeah, to work underwater.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, marine biology, particularly for the good jobs, is super competitive. It's like, you know, it's as hard as anything to do. But the good thing is it's like formulaic, you know. If you do all the things right and you're better than everybody else at it, you're going to get the job you want. So um, what
1: are the good jobs? You mentioned good jobs.
2: Good jobs would be working in a, a system or a place that you like, you want to live in. Like, you know, there's always jobs in Kansas and stuff. Sure, where sure. You're like, you know, waiting around a mud pod, pond for frogs and stuff. But like the, the good jobs, yeah. like working for BTT. What or, you're interested in. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. So I, I just kind of had that mentality and, you know, basically didn't do anything else in my twenties, but study and research and everything like that. So, um, the learning curve, it's just, you know, it's a grind and it just, you know, self complete commitment to, uh, your graduate studies early on. And then hopefully it pays off at the end. Because I would think that that learning curve, you're not really sure what you're looking for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're
0: saying. You Uh, know, like, okay, so I want to be a Marine biologists, and you studied all that, but you didn't study marine biology, did you
2: fishery science okay same yeah same thing, same wavelength
0: so then at least you have an idea what you're looking for
2: yeah
0: um when you say
2: looking for, what do you mean
0: well you know as far as when you go out there um
2: like, like on the water, trying to do yeah, when stuff? Yeah, you're,
0: when you're on the water, you're not really sure where to go to find stuff. Yeah. You know, how do I find where these fish live? How do I find where they travel, uh, where they slide, like Western dry rocks? That I would think that would be somewhat relatively easy because it's a big reef where fish go to. Uh, but like the aggregation you were talking about the other, uh, the other night where you found a school of 2,000 bonefish going offshore and spawning. Yeah. I mean, my God, how did you find that?
2: Yeah, that was... So yeah, to, to back up, you know, part of a, one of the projects we have is to you know, learn about the ecology of these fish. And the one thing for bonefish, you know, we kind of knew where their juveniles were. We know where the, the habitats they live as adults, but their, their spawning sites has been this mystery. So we we put together a project where, you know, we basically just grabbing at clues and just atta- and investigating them with scientific tools. And we relied on guides to tell us, like, basically when they saw bonefish just do weird things. Um,
0: and what would that rep- be like? I mean, I remember fishing tournaments in April. Mm-hmm. You'd see big uh, wads of bonefish racing down the shoreline. Like that,
2: yeah. Um, so there, th- those were clues, and that's actually a clue that paid off, um, those, those sightings back then. Back then. Um, just, and more recently, like, if I saw some guy catch, like, three eight-pound bonefish in a day and, like, the lower keys yeah. You know, i instantly message him i'm like hey can you tell me where you were you know general location and um i swear i won't fish those spots I'm yeah yeah so. like i don't care about it. i mean i'd be cool to catch <laughs> one but yeah just like you know just anything that yeah. like and that what, was unusual and, yeah what time yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you go on this side of the flat or this side you know that's um, funny what was, is,
0: yeah so Differences. I mean, finding fish that doing different things. Yeah. Why is it important to find a, a bonefish aggregation?
2: It's important for a lot of reasons. Um, first and foremost, you, if you don't know where it is, you don't know anything, what the threats they may face. Um, you just don't know anything. You're just with this big uncertainty. Uh, when we went into that study... You know, I was totally expecting it to be like what they have in the Bahamas, where kind of these knots of owned fish that are—I mean, they're they're big, but not like you know the 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 meat, I guess. And that there was something about them that kept them invisible or hard enough to find, where guides would or anglers would come up with them occasionally. You know, they get a couple. And as far as we'd have to go on that side, would be just like monitor it, and you know, if we see so, you know, just make sure the word got out like those are aggregations. Don't you know? Don't get greedy. Just catch a couple of fish and move on, um, but as we found, as we discovered, and uh, it's actually kind of now worrisome is where it is. There's a reason why it's been invisible. It's uh, they've done a good job of hiding themselves. But uh, as our population recovers and grows, it's 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 not going to be invisible for long. People are going to find it, and then when they do, they're going to figure out how to fish it, and then a fishery is going to develop for them.
0: How deep of water are they?
2: Uh, they're somewhere without giving too much away, uh, about 20 feet to 50 feet. They kind of use that, that mm-hmm. zone on the reef and they move around and, um, right. But it's a predictable enough area that, uh, you know, like someone who has way better fishing than me, uh, could figure it out, figure out how to effectively find them, catch them and then, you know, offer a bucket list trip. Yeah. We, we
0: were talking to, uh, Albert, uh, Ponzola, mm-hmm. uh, yesterday, And he was talking about Western dry rocks. I brought it up because I find that, you know, Albert is not only a fly fisherman believing in conservation, but he's also a commercial fisherman. Most people believe uh, that closing Western dry rocks was just imperative because that's a a, a spawning location for for permit. Mm -hmm. But he was against it. It's like, how do you convince um, the masses don't fish? Like in Colorado, you you're not allowed it's so unethical to fish over uh beds with rainbow trout you know don't fish the reds how do we change that that thinking process um for bonefish permit and and the fish that are in the ocean
2: it's all marine fish it's it's insane how how that has not translated like i was talking to a scientist over in ireland and the government bought them a fleet of high-end boats to fish this one area they couldn't access, and that area was a big spawning ground for Orange Ruffy. So the government bought them the boats, they went out there, uh, you know, more or less fished it, eradicated that aggregation, and then sold the boats and made money. So like it, you know, a government-funded project to really ruin, you know, wreck this fishery. Right. And, and even at that level, you know, that's still going on. So I don't I don't know why these these special moments, these special times that these fish should absolutely be left alone, like how that is not, you know, translated into more of the marine world. Right. Um, Because I
0: know the guys next door, they're out there catching these monster mutton I was was just about to say that, yeah. You know, they're on the reef spawning right now, and they're going out every day bringing home fish this big. Yeah. Why do you have to
1: bring home 20 of them? Is that pretty unethical in the community down here? The fish
2: spawning aggregations? Well, yeah, mutton snapper in particular right now. You know, it's so ingrained in the community, and I I don't want to speak for the offshore fleet, but I I know uh, some of the people that I talk to, you know, they hate it, but they have to do it. Um, And it's just kind of the idea of all of everybody else is doing it. I'm going to do it. Like the the mangrove spawn in July is kind of the same way. Um, And it's just unfortunate, too, because, yeah, you can catch a lot of fish during those aggregation periods. And yeah, they're big and that's cool and it's predictable. You can sell trips way in advance. But like, if you they're did make,
1: They're making more fish. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The fishery would be so much better year round, you know? Sure. Um, so I, if there was something in the world I could change would be like that mentality and- So uh, the, let's go back to the spawning aggregation
0: that you found. Why, mm-hmm. why is that so important to know where they are? Could it also give you an idea about the population? Yeah, that we have available.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, one of the core questions, particularly for bonefish, and is that as we think about optimizing our investments, you know, and conservation investments everywhere is how much of our bonefish population is our own, like how mm. much of our spawning biomass recruits here, grows up here and lives and dies here. Uh, you know, evolution basically tries to make that happen at all costs, like salmon have taken it too far. And now they've gotten all sorts of issues where you know they actively go to the river and spawn and die in it uh, to enhance their uh, you know self retention and you know population. So the idea is that it's likely that bonefish are trying to do that here, and the question is how much of it does stay. So by mapping these spotting sites at the first level, we can we can reevaluate ocean current models and see how much retention we actually have and how much control of our population we have locally versus you know leaving it to the fate of somebody else. Um. The next level is water quality, Uh, you know, like spawning is a luxury, you know, if you think about it, like money for humans, like your your first priority with your money is to like live, you know, rent, food, water. Uh, If you have enough of it, then you can start buying stuff on disposable income, you know, start trying to pick up chicks and, you know, all that stuff. And then if you get enough, you know, you can raise a family and fish is the same way, but it's energy, you know, uh, the first priority is to live, not be eaten. To grow and then if they can take care of all of that then they'll reproduce so when you think about water quality stresses like the first thing that's going to go is the reproductive effort or the reproductive quality of fish because that's a luxury That's luxury that's disposable income for them um so if we look at that you know that that's a good indicator of what water quality could be doing particularly if we think about some of the contaminants like PFAS, pharmaceuticals and all this other nasty crap we're putting in the water um so we have that level by identifying the spawn. We can kind of look at water quality issues uh, at the uh, after the fish that are spawning versus the fish or not. And there's something there to that, and we'll, we need to investigate it further. But um, I think there's definitely a, 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 a interesting linkage or important linkage that we're hope to uh, further evaluate. And the, the third thing is, of course, fishing fishing pressure. You know, this is an aggregation. It's a you know, what we saw would be a very attractive thing for people to fish for. Uh, I mean, there were some very, very big bonefish in there, and why we don't see those on the flats, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I've been losing sleep over it, Andy, actually, to be honest with you. Like, now that we discovered it, you know, like, am I going to be the harbinger of doom of this place? Um, cause the wrong person ended up finding out or, or am I going to be its protector? You know, right. uh,
0: why was it so important to tell people that you found it?
2: I, I, I think the importance of it is to, to substantiate your, your job and what BTT is doing. Is like, we found this. It's optimistic. You know, I think there's a lot to it. There's, you know, it's optimism. Right. Um, you know, our population's recovering. They can spawn again. I think it's good to let the policymakers know where it is and how it is and that people are excited about it. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I
1: think justify your research and try yeah. to help raise money for
2: there, There's some of that, you know, but if that was the only thing we could control that. Um, I mean, the people that would be giving a lot of money to this project, you know, they, they'd be okay with not knowing. Right. Um, so I have the fundraising side of it. Is, yeah, it's probably the lesser of just yeah. you know raising awareness that these exist, um, letting policy makers know that these exist and then actions need to be taken potentially, so.
0: Yeah, I, I can see all the above, but also too, it'll create enthusiasm yeah. for everybody who are fishing for these great fish that we do have a population and it is growing. Whether on the boat, on the river, or in the woods, Yeti products are by our side. There are many innovative, first-class companies in the outdoor market today, but none more so than Yeti. In 2006, they took the industry by storm when they produced their first roto-molded cooler that was reliable and built for the wild. Seventeen years later, with a multitude of new products, they continued to raise the bar and be the gold standard for all outdoor brands. We couldn't be more proud to have them as a Millhouse sponsor and a family member. Starting from a 90-year-old family recipe, wickles are wickedly delicious pickles packed with garlic and peppers, a staple in our skiff and all shoreline lunches. Originating from Sim's grandmother's kitchen to a pantry near yours, from pickles, okra, relishes, and spreads, check them out to elevate all of your meals to the next level.
2: Yeah. It's optimism, man. Like how cool. Like we haven't had yeah. a spawning stock locally. For I so remember
0: years. when the video was, was being played last night, you pointed
1: at one fish.
2: Look, that's, t- that's a 20 pound bone <laughs> fish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. It so, was
1: cool to see all those big fish. Cause you may not see them on the flats, but they're, they're there somewhere. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Some secret reservoir population that we've had. Who knows for how long.
1: Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, this might be a stupid question, but you might have the the research and data to back it up. So if you catch a Bonefish. Have you caught a bonefish in like say Biscayne Bay area and tagged it and seen it come down to Alamrata, maybe marathon yeah. and worked its way down?
2: Yeah. Um, we actually tagged a really big one. Uh, the biggest one of the study, um, you know, the, the length weight estimate put it around 12 pounds. Uh, crazy. Yeah. You know, it was so lucky. We, uh, it was, wind was blowing. It was nuts. Uh, a big storm was coming in. So we just threw two shrimp on a jig head and we're just dragging behind the boat thinking about what we're going to do. And both rods go off. And one was this huge bonefish. Wow. Um, and that that was actually a repeatable thing we could do to get tags out uh, for like two months. And that hasn't existed since, but it's a eight feet of water, random, you know, kind of location. Eight, eight feet of water. Yeah.
1: And yeah. that was in Biscayne Bay.
2: That was in Biscayne, yeah. And
1: where did you see it go?
2: Uh, went down last saw to like look like Shell Key area. Um, so maybe it's living in a channel down there now right. hasn't come back up. Uh, and we've had fish from big pine come up to Biscayne Bay. So I, I think they're oh, a little cool. bit more mobile yeah. than what we previously thought. And whether that's because it's a recovering population and this is like, you know, they're trying to fill out areas that they're, mm-hmm. that are the best or they've always done it. And just, you know, it's been kind of cryptic, you know,
1: right. You ever see fish go to like Bahamas? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, we had one, uh, no, well, now three now, three, um, and I, I suspect it's going to be more. We have a paper in review that's uh, soon to be published. But uh, the craziest thing about that was that one fish was tagged at Crandon with a dart tag. Another fish was tagged uh, off the um, uh not Biscayne. Ocean oh, Reef? Yeah, no. Uh, Isla Mirada, the snickers around there, I think. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, the one I put an acoustic transmitter one was in uh, Little Spanish. Despite that that's being crazy. like you know 160 mile difference or kilometer difference, they went to the exact same spot, and in, in the Bahamas and Andros,
1: all like, those
2: tagged like, fish did. Ten yeah, ten kilometers apart from where, despite them being tagged like a million miles apart over you know a 15 that's, year period, like, that's crazy. It's
0: insane. Do you think possibly those fish were born? in the Bahamas, ended up in the in the States, in the Keys, and ended up going back after they were tagged, like a salmon like a in Alaska?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just wondering, they went back to the same spot. Or maybe they're spawning over there and going to head back?
2: You know, I, yeah, because we're, we're that, you know, we're, if the, if you kind of, because with the, the acoustic tagged fish, we actually have the the movement path of where it went. Right. With the, the dart tagged fish, it was just a point A to point B. So it looked like it was going to that spawning site kind of near, uh, in the central Andros area. Uh, but if they're both, all three of them going to the middle bites and, um, man, mm. what that means, I don't, I mean, I don't know, but it's cool. That means is their
1: fishes are our fish
2: yeah. and our fish are their fish. Well,
0: you know, when BTT first got started, one of the initial questions that really, uh, made everybody's uh, attention come to focus was when billy pate was talking about tarpon and i think it you know the the migratory route through mexico louisiana into the keys he said are our fish their fish and their fish our fish and that gave reason to start a conservation group btt so you can go in other regions and say hey man we need to save these fish because as everybody knows like in belize Catch and releases were worth like $86 million a year to that country. So that's mostly why I think initially people wanted to save tarpon because they knew that those those tarpon that they were killing and, and using as fertilizer in Mexico could have been our fish swimming on our beaches.
1: And didn't they think those bigger tarpon like Homosassa area came from Africa or something? Uh, no, but we, we're all thinking that there's. You tell me.
0: Is that total BS? Because because the, the tarpon in Africa are all so big.
2: Is that a different uh, gene pool? The the best we can say is there there is genetic similarity between the tarpon in Africa and in Florida, uh, but that doesn't to get genetic similarity that doesn't take much with an 80, right. 90 year old animal. You know, you just need. Couple of them every couple of years to find their way across the Atlantic, and then then you'd have that similarity. So, um, yeah, it, there there's some connectivity, and it can't go. I, there's I forget what way it can't go, but it can't, I think it can't come back from Africa to us without a, an adult tarpon, you know, right? Moving its body this way, if that makes sense. Because mm.
0: obviously, tarpon grow to what eighty years. Yeah, yeah. Maybe our fish just can't don't have a chance to grow that old so they don't have a chance to get that big. There's not a lot of people fishing for them in Gabon.
2: Is there not? Have you been over there?
0: No, but I can't imagine. I can't imagine Gabon looking like South Florida right now. <laughs> <laughs> skiffs everywhere. Yeah, skiffs everywhere. I've got friends that fish over there, and they, they hook monster fish for sure. Um, what about this big uh, sargasm grass bed in, off of Africa that's 5,000 miles long? and it's coming our way. Yeah, Have you guys thought about that?
2: We have. Uh, we have a couple, studi- this, this permit study that we're just getting started will um, we'll provide us a good snapshot of what that does to the food web. Because um, what we may see is uh, when all that stuff starts washing in in the short term, it's like the permit just end up loving it, you know? Uh, and they can pick off all the critters off there, which Ooh. may be pulling them off the flats or something. Um, and that, in the short term, you may see these kind of animals shift around. We knew there was a slug of it that came into Biscayne Bay that we were monitoring, and it um, washed up against on the seagrass flat, rotted, and killed all the seagrass underneath it. Um, so as these things start pushing in, you know, we'll have these habitat level effects where it kills our grass. In it, they places. kill
0: mangroves too, don't they?
2: I bet it could. Yeah.
0: That's what I was reading. Yeah. yeah. So that's a big pile of weeds. Yeah. Yeah. Five thousand. It's the width of. It's like one and a half times the size of the United States in width. Five thousand miles is crazy. Um yeah. what does your information and the common fisherman need to know as far as, you know, what our work is doing mm-hmm. and what can the common man do to help uh instill what we have uh, as a fishery long term?
2: That's a great question. Um to fix our, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I I think the fishing in Florida is still pretty cool. It's just hurting. You know, it's mm-hmm. th- there's a lot of fun to be had on the water. There's bonefish that are coming back. You know, perimeter's still around in places, and uh, you know, I think I think that's going to sort itself out soon. Um, tarpon, well, I'm a little more concerned about them in the long term, but you know, they've been around since before the dinosaurs. So you know, if, if humans with hooking can- rods and you know. Boogie whips and or buggy whips and stuff drive them to extinction. That'd be insane. That's not going to happen. No, right. no. But you know, but the going back to that. So there's three things that we need to all of us as a community and BTT we're working on all three need to address. You know, we need to address the habitat issues. uh, Fix mangroves, fix creeks, fix seagrass beds. Keep boats from running them off. We need to fix the water quality, and that's you know Everglades restoration. That's you know bringing revitalizing our wastewater and infrastructure that's been basically ignored since the 70s um, before you know, many of the chemicals that we use today in, in daily life were even existed. Um, and last, we need to address fisheries issues, uh, whether that's the, the shark, the emerging shark issue, uh, aggregation overfishing um, and then handling practices and all that. And so as we think about all of this as anglers and guides and the community, you know, all three are important and we need to do what we can to address all three collectively. Um, The other part of that is like catch and release fishing is so new. It's like you don't learn about it in textbooks. Like you learn that you have a fishery, it's going to kill them out of a bunch of fish. And you have to figure out what's the optimization. How many can you kill to keep the population going? And under that, it's called maximum sustainable yield. You kill about half the population, and then the, you know you'll have enough to re- recover a good amount of the population each year. But with like catch and release fishing, it's like, what do you? Where's your optimization? You know, like, do we want to have half the population down so it can replenish itself? Um, you know, that's that's a bunch of small bone fish in the keys. That's probably no permit on the flats. Do we want to have a, what is, do we have an optimization for big bone fish, permit on the flats, you know, swimming tarpon and all that? So we got to think and then like, how do you, with that thinking about the optimization, then you got to think about what can you do? Like, we can't regulate take because no one's killing them. Um, So we have to think about the behavior of anglers and guides and those are completely unenforceable. You know, you can't set a regulation in that's effective to like, keep a bonefish in the water. So it really is going to fall on the angling community to like think about what the fishery that they want is, you know, and like, how do we, how do we move there? You know, if you see a bunch of bonefish, catch one and move on, you know, or catch, catch a couple. Don't take as many photos bone bonefish as you, you know, don't take a photo of every single fish you catch, you, you know, things like that and mm-hmm. discipline that we can instill on in ourselves to kind of
0: like common sense, but yeah, common sense is hard to, hard to, uh, Hard to find when you get so excited, exactly. And you work so hard to get onto a flat, and right. you start catching a bunch of fish. No, I, I get that.
2: Yeah. So um, yeah, I think it's a lot of it's a catch and release, and then you know really considering all, all all of the cumulative issues that that are are you know that our fisheries are right.
1: Hitting. What about sharks? I mean, is that a big of problem? As you know, many guides we we speak about you know we speak to, they say the shark predation is a huge problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, like. I, I think the first, the message that really gets lost in the sharks is like, the first is the optimism. Like their sharks were like, most of these shark species were in, critically endangered, like on the verge of extinction. And through like. How many years ago? Like 30 years ago. Like, so that was when they had longliners here. Yeah. And then like the Jaws movie came out and then the other, you know, the kill, catch and kill wreck fishery took off. So we were able to bring that fishery back to a point now that it's causing, you know, causing problems to other fisheries. So I think that's cool, you know, in the first level of it, that stuff works, you know? Right. Um, the second part of it, you know, it's uh, now we have this problem, like, what do you? What do we do? You uh-huh. know? Um, it's not only we have more sharks, but those damn things are smart, man. Like, you know, they know boats now. Like, yeah, they know
0: motors. When yeah. they, sh- they pull up and they turn that motor off, it's the dinner bill is, is being worked. Yeah,
2: so. Um, like,
0: they're talking about this is a Bahia Honda or, mm-hmm. or Seven Mile. You kill one shark and hang it from a you know uh, from the pile in there, all the sharks go away. Is that true?
2: It's species specific. I, I I've no doubt. I've heard that enough from enough people that it works for bull sharks. Um, so only bull sharks. That's when you say species specific. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really. Uh, and they've done studies other places. So hammerheads it- will still come in from my understanding yes uh, i haven't killed a hammerhead and hung yeah, it from a sure. bridge or like you know right. seen it myself but uh i i have heard you know i know for lemon sharks like it doesn't work like if you if you kill a lemon shark and hang it from a bridge just other lemon sharks just start eating it uh, <laughs> so like um very interesting and and if any of that kind of stuff it's it's like it, the sharks are going to figure out what that this you know the dead bull shark from the bridge is probably a non threat um, and, you know, it was just like a dog. They'll learn. Yeah, that is an unneutered dog that knows there's like, you know, a, a dog in heat over there. Mm-hmm. And all he's got to do is run through that electrical fence and get a little prick, you know. And then...
0: Everybody talks about the the light line guys in Key West. They're losing 50% of uh, of what they hook to yeah. sharks. 50%. And it's like... The, I, I I just... That's just... Un- blows my mind that you're going to go out there hook a fish and you're going to lose half of them to sharks and everybody's doing it
2: yeah i mean it's i i I feel for the guides and you know a light tackle inshore like and the the fishery
0: too is there an answer i mean is this is this or does this represent a healthy ocean
2: i don't think so i think it represents a ocean with Declining habitat and declining water quality and in essence, declining forage. Like in a natural system, like a bull shark is rarely going to get a permit. Like, I mean, they will for sure, but it's like that, you know, it, it wants to eat stingrays. It wants to eat mullet. It doesn't, you know, a permit's too much, too much effort. Um, so for them to, you know, be targeting them now and keying in on all that stuff. I, yeah, I think that's a sign of just like the ecosystem not able to support the predator biomass that's been created. Um, so I think that's one hand of it. Uh, what can we do? I, you know, I think we need to look at shark deterrents, pretty, give a shark deterrent a hard look. Uh, it's going to be a short-term, temporary thing. The sharks will inevitably get wise to it, and that won't work anymore, but it'll buy us time.
0: What's uh, the, what's the a shark deterrent?
2: Like the, you know, there's people at Key West Community College that are, uh, you know, it, trying to scale up that stuff with a bull shark smell, the dead bull shark smell, and, like, make that into capsules. Right, okay. Like, uh, Bear Holman has a funny story where they gave him, like, a trial one. And I, I forget he was supposed... There was some pro- process where he had to, like, either pull the pen and then throw it or or throw it with the pen still in. But anyways, he ended up just blasting his whole face with just, like, rotten shark. Oh, <laughs> got stuck in his beard. Um, there's a... Shark Shield has come up with a cool cool technology that you can hang from a back of it. It's meant for back of a sailboat that mm-hmm. connects to your battery. It gives you like a 75 foot, a kind of electromagnetic barrier. Uh, I, we were talking back in January with uh, Florida Keys Fishing Guides Association to see if they would be willing to you know, buy a couple and test them out. Cause in Florida Bay, that could work. That could be really good for snook and redfish mm-hmm. for tarpon. It's not going to, you know, 75 feet is not going to give you enough time. Right. Um Or perimeter bonefish. But uh, you know, I, I think as demand for that kind of product keeps going up, you know, like someone's going to figure something out that works for at least a little while. Um, Then I think we, you know, like we need to figure out how to like, you know, keep, you know, like spawning aggregations, you know, like that's a place that attracts a lot of sharks and like shouldn't be fishing that, you know, like think about strategic area closures that are in places where, are important for the biology of the fish and are also resulting in a lot of these depredation post-release predation um you know if it's like if it's just a small percentage of sharks that have just learned maybe mm-hmm. calling i don't know you know i have to see some more information on that to be convinced um but yeah so you need to like break the negative experience with sharks for sure uh, or and break the positive experience they get with right. boats you know right, right. um
1: what about the, you know, we're coming in, it's May, full moon and new moon creates worm hatches mm-hmm. in that low tide. What do you think about the palola worm? What's your take on that as a, as opposed to like how important it is for the tarpon?
2: That's crazy, man. Those things are nuts for them. Uh, why? Like, I, I, you know, I, I we have, uh, thanks to you guys, we have some worms and we're going to run a macronutrient analysis on them. Uh, and I think they, they really like them. And I, the hypothesis is that, as the, the, the nutrient makeup of a worm is like gonna be very, very similar to the nutrient makeup of an egg, a tarpon egg. So and what that means is that like when it consumes it, it's like going straight to egg production. So they get this last kind of big gully full of food that can go straight to making sure their eggs are healthy right before they go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's so funny because we're always hearing it. They thought it was an aphrodisiac. The fish get high from eating these things. And, and we were always thinking over the last few years, there's gotta be something about it. The reproduction, because after that full moon, they go offshore and spawn. Yeah. There's gotta be a connection to the, to the eggs and and, and into the spawning, you know, ritual.
2: I I would think so. Um, yeah, but they do, you know, there's like crab flushes that they time their spawn with in Boca Grande and Egmont Key. Um, Easy food. Yeah, where, it, I mean, they're not going to get the same kind of benefit they would from, you know, 10 pounds or 20 pounds of worms in their belly as they were, like, you know, a bunch of shells and stuff right. like that.
0: Why don't tarpon go west from Behia Honda Bridge? Or as many as that come to Behia Honda from, you know, the east?
2: You know better than I would, man.
0: I don't got an answer for <laughs> I mean, you. Why do you it's think? Like, it's like Ponzola said, you cannot fit another tarpon at Bahia Honda Bridge. I said, and they get stuck. There's like a gate right there yeah. and, and a small percentage to go down to Key West, et cetera. But between Bahia Honda and Ocean Reef, there is a highway of fish. And it's crazy how they want to stay above
1: Bahia Honda just that deep channel that congregates fish and they can
2: uh you're the scientist (laughs) yeah well there's a lot of food down there for sure uh yeah and uh but it's weird i mean key west used to have a lot of fish i mean they made movies about it in the 70s and stuff so it's um why why that fishery is kind of doing this you know here in the
0: punzola and and uh and some of these guys like dustin huff they have not seen the biomass they used to see in the gulf of mexico Mm -hmm. um he used to say out yeah, at all these banks, you'd go out there in February and just see a, a mass of fish, like thousands of fish, and he's not seeing it anymore. Although during COVID, Dustin said he was out there and he saw the biomass again. Um, but they haven't seen it in the last number of years. Do you have any feel for the numbers game, the biomass that is no longer in the Gulf?
2: That's a great question, and and it comes down to... Like this catch and release thing that we have, like it's not like tarpon have a choice, you know. They don't have to be in the keys. Uh, they don't have to be in the flats. They could they could be just as fine in 100 feet of water and probably live a lot of their life out there. So, how much how much harassment can they take from boats running them over? How much you know water quality changes in that mm-hmm. neck of the woods can they cha- t- take before they just uh, you know give up? Just don't go there. Yeah. So, and that place is weird because it doesn't get that much boat traffic, you know? Um, right. It, it's a good flow of water from Florida Bay. So, uh, but it, from him, his description of it, that that changed well before the seagrass die off.
0: Um, I remember we used to go out there and, and just see so many fish. And yeah. you, you still see them uh, a little bit further to the north but down in the lower Keys, uh, I haven't seen them in a long time. But those guys go out there every year and they say they are gone. But Fordyce also said that um, where the water is released out of, out of ponds a lot of times, he's seen a lot of fish don't get down into the Keys. They kind of, there's kind of a barrier there because there may be bad water that's being flushed out you know, in that falling tide. Have you guys tested that water up in that
2: area? The the water coming out of ponds and by extension Shark River, I mean that's going to be as about as clean as it could get. Uh, you know, if Rob is seeing something that you know, he again he's like a predator, right? Know, and I, I trust what he if he's seeing water that looks different, there probably is something different about it. But you know, just based off the water quality standards we have to get water into the park, like that's been a major barrier to restoration was, you know, because we had to clean the water. We have to clean the water before it gets down into the shark slough and into right. the shark river. So I, I would be surprised if there's some hypernutrient water coming out. I mean, it can come out of Florida Bay, you know, right. uh, and you can see it on satellite imagery. Um I mean, the other, the other thing is it's maybe that the keys has stayed the same, but just the yeah, ponds has all of a sudden got a lot more productive. I mean, mm-hmm. we've had, seven or eight years of really good rainfall in the, both the summer and in the winter. So maybe that hydration is, you know, doing something good for the tarpon in the Everglades. They and want to stay up yeah. in that area. Why oh, leave? Yeah. Right.
1: Talk a little bit about that study that came out a couple months ago, maybe a year ago that you guys found pharmaceuticals in the bonefish bloodstream, correct? And now in, in redfish as well in Tampa Bay and the West coast. How does that happen?
2: Yeah. Um, it happens because the, the main problem is because our wastewater treatment was built in the 70s um, before any pharmaceuticals were really invented or PFAS were really a thing. And so the, 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 the main culprit is that our, our wastewater treatment facilities just don't clean them up. So it's just in the water. Yeah. And when we take them, you know, our body processes like a, a very small percentage of them. I, I don't know the exact number offhand. So we end up excreting a lot of XX, XX Excess nutri- or excess pharmaceuticals into the water that are unprocessed and they go directly into our marine systems. So, and how we kind of we didn't come out of this out of thin air. We part of a study we had prior to that to learn about the physiology behind bonefish spawning. We had bonefish in tanks. We had there's bonefish in the Bahamas in tanks and then bonefish in the Keys in tanks. And the bonefish in the Bahamas in the tanks, you could just walk in the tanks and they'd swim around. You know, you know hand feed them, you know, it's totally didn't even bother by the human presence. But in the, you know, the keys fish, if you like flipped on a light or like bang something in that room, the fish would just go nuts and inevitably kill themselves by swimming into the walls. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as we were like, w- what now, what is this? You know, we're, they're testing the water in the tanks for all these different things. And then Jen Rehage, the scientist that's on, on the BTT board. She's like, I, I, you know, I met the, I know this researcher in Sweden. He he runs pharmaceutical analysis, and this seems like a weird behavioral thing that would be like a, kind of a cause from a weird drug. Do you mind if I send him some samples? So she sent him some samples, and they came back like off the charts on all these different drugs, and uh, so much so they're like, we need, can you get us a few more because they don't look, this seems too high to be what you're saying it is, and the, another batch came back and it was the same thing. So we scaled it up and then, um, that work found that more or less every single bone fish had been exposed to one pharmaceutical. And when I, there's exposure and then like effects, you know, like right. if you smoke weed 30 days ago, it may still be in your system, but you know, you're not high. Um, uh, but so we had fish that were exposed and then we had about 50% of them that were feeling the effects of those drugs. So like, they they were they were high by the time they were sampled. Wow, that's crazy yeah.
0: that there's so much in their system that it would actually f-
1: affect their behavior. Yeah, could you tell what pharmaceutical was more prevalent in their body?
2: In their body, yeah, the a big one was antidepressants, and that's kind of a. Uh, and Sweden, our colleagues have done a lot of work on that. And when you expose a fish to antidepressants, or yeah. They, you know, more or less kind of lose their fear of predators, become more aggressive, more antisocial, and, and their long-term survival gets really low. Um, and so much so that in salmon, when they migrate, like, they all die, if the ones that were dosed with an uh, antidepressant. Um, and then there were some, you know, it's kind of the standard ones that people take. There was, like, joint medication in there, um, heart medication, and then some really, some strange ones, um, like some antipsychotics that were there that's crazy yeah um but it was jen that kind of put two and two together yeah yeah absolutely yeah just she's like i know a guy you know it's just you know and it turns out that's a very pervasive contaminant in our system uh yeah they tested the food it's in the food so what about tarpon and permit uh so tarpon 100 percent uh permit 100 percent but um we have some theories now that because bonefish and tarpon are just like so evolutionarily old that they just have no capacity to get rid of these things. So they accum- they may accumulate a lot more in their bodies than like, say, redfish, which is kind of an evolutionarily new critter um, that may just have a little bit more ability to get rid of them. Not, not to say it's not affecting them, but, you know, mm-hmm. they're not stuck with it for however long bonefish may be. So, um, uh, and then it's going to be in the sharks for sure. Like it's going to be in like everything. So we think about the shark issues now, like how much, you know, like what level is just, you know, them being just cracked out, causing them <laughs> to like, you know, you know, be so aggressive Chew- all the time. Chewing on bridges. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Wow. So, yeah, going back to the bonefish reproduction, like there's a part, you know, this, the, the aggregation we found, you know, it's the conglomerate of Isla Morata, Key Largo. On um, Biscayne Bay, and we've tagged fish in each node, um, but the fish in the west side of Biscayne Bay—that particularly the ones that kind of overlap, where there's so our septic systems, like their spawning effort's like 10%, and those fish are bigger fish. Like, so the question is how much of these drugs—and that's something we're going to investigate—like are essentially sterilizing these bonefish um, and causing them their spawning effort to be way lower than it should be interesting so um yeah yeah it's uh kind of uh it's a new new kind of lead and um but yeah the
0: work you guys you guys do the spectrum is so vast it's crazy
2: yeah what's your
0: what's the greatest success you think of btt
2: i think the greatest success of B. I i mean there's there's a lot um internationally
0: the state parks in the Bahamas. It's great.
2: You know, yeah. working with the Belizeans to, you know, move away from commercial fishing to more, you know, recreational.
0: Did you guys start that where all those, uh, the three species is a game fish, no one can kill a bonefish, permit or tarpon. Is that correct?
2: Uh, we contributed to it. I, I don't, can't answer for certain if we did, but I know we played a big role in that. You know, I, I, right. don't, I think it may be a matter of like who had the idea first, um, right. but certainly we were, we were a driving force behind that. Um, for me, I, I think, you know, the biggest accomplishment is definitely for me, Western dry rocks, that, that place. Um, I, yeah, and I do feel for the people that fish out there. Like, you know, I talked to a couple people that like, they cried, you know, when they thought about the idea of closing it because their dad took them there, their grandfather took them there, you know, it's just this cultural ingrained, ingrained in the culture, but like, right. um, but I, I think that that's going to pay off big time. The, you know. The protection of this multi-species aggregation that forms right on top, you know, that's right next to a big gyre that promotes retention, and I think we're going to start seeing the benefits of that. Whether there's also
0: like twelve, I think, other species that spawn there. Yeah, just besides the the permit.
2: Yeah the uh, the big the big five I guess would be permit um, mutton snapper, mangrove snapper, black grouper, and then there's a couple other snapper species, but the you know, the four managed ones are those. Sure. Um, and then, yeah, so I think, you know, probably in short order, we're gonna see more buttons on the flats. You know, I think the permit population's gonna you know, get once, it's gonna start going up again, you know, and I mean, the goal for me is to like, me going out, not knowing much, in 10 years time, be able to go once every three trips and see a 10 pound bonefish. And then, you know, have pretty average 10 shot days of permit, and then like, catch tarpon when I feel like it. So if we that, can- That's your goal. That's my goal in the next 10 years i like that goal
0: yeah i did too
2: um yeah how can people donate to btt uh you can donate by going to our website bonefishtarpontrust.org um and and then they'll there and then just click the donate now button mm-hmm. it's uh you know we not only do we do science that we talked about quite a bit but we you know we're very engaged in policy uh, at this new legislative session that just came out you know we were at a big hand in getting a hundred million dollars to Indian river lagoon restoration, um, you know, 20 million to Biscayne, uh, and then all sorts of all that great stuff that's happening with Everglades restoration. So, um, yeah, we have the policy side, we have education campaigns and also the science to inform, you know, all of that stuff. So it, I, I'm, I'm so thrilled to be a part of this organization and like, it's, it's, it's just so cool to see us develop and continue. Now I just got to get, Jet skis off flats is the next, <laughs> next goal of the next four years. I know I've, I've always, I know I've always been a, a big advocate
0: of uh, what you guys have done. And I travel a little uh, bit, as you know, and raise money for BTT. And uh, all we can do is do the best we can to, to preserve our, our fisheries and, and the habitat and, and wage, wage, wage onward. But without the work of you uh, and you know, the other scientists, your work, uh, there's no substance. There's no base for you know. You bring the knowledge to the table, and I appreciate uh, and speak on behalf of all the other guys out there that that do this for. It's a big part of our hearts and a big part of other people's lifestyles. You know. Thank you very much.
1: And, the you know, Mad Fish you. Scientist.
2: <laughs> Thanks appreciate so much, it, Ross. Nikki. Really appreciate it, buddy. Yeah. Keep up the great work, buddy. Thank you. Thank no. Yeah. Thank you guys for your support and it's you know you so you're doing a great job raising awareness of our fisheries issues and all that. So, you know, it's a collective effort. We're all arms of it. Yeah,
0: we're all in. Thanks Thanks so much, Ross.
2: All right.
0: Is our fishing sustainable? And are we influencing all the right components for a healthy and growing sport? We'll continue this conversation with Ross in the near future, which will include the most popular game fish, tarpon. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you soon.